back up in our study of the book of James, so I invite you to open up to James chapter 1. For the sake of context, I'm going to begin our reading in verse 18. We'll continue through verse 27. Hear the word of our God. Of God's own will, he brought us forth by the word of truth, that we should be a kind of first fruits of his creatures. Know this, my beloved brothers, let every person be quick to hear, slow to speak, slow to anger, for the anger of man does not produce the righteousness of God. Therefore, put away all filthiness and rampant wickedness and receive with meekness the implanted word, which is able to save your souls." But be doers of the word, and not hearers only, deceiving yourselves. For if anyone is a hearer of the word and not a doer, he is like a man who looks intently at his natural face in the mirror. For he looks at himself, and he goes away and at once forgets what he was like. But the one who looks into the perfect law, the law of liberty, and perseveres, being no hearer who forgets, but a doer who acts, he will be blessed in his doing." If anyone thinks he is religious and does not bridle his tongue, he, but, uh, but deceives his heart, this person's religion is worthless. Religion that is pure and undefiled before God, uh, before God the Father is this, to visit orphans and widows in their affliction and to keep oneself unstained from the world. The word of our God, let's pray. Heavenly Father, as we come to your word I pray that you would speak to us by it, by your Spirit, that we would be a people who are formed by your Word, directed, guided, shaped, and even empowered by your Spirit from within. Bring transformation in us, and then bring transformation through us. To your glory and praise, we pray in Christ Jesus. Amen. The final words of Jesus recorded in the gospel according to Matthew are these. Go and make disciples of all nations, baptizing them in the name of the Father and of the Son and of the Holy Spirit, and teaching them to obey everything I have commanded you. Now, these are very familiar words to anybody who's been in church for any length of a time, and they are an overview, a a description of what it means to be a disciple of Jesus Christ in the broadest sketch of things. It means, one, that to be part of the body is to uh, experience uh, salvation, the mark of belonging to Christ, the the mark of the the sign of the covenant applied to someone. You know, Christians debate as to at what point uh, that should be added into the put on somebody's life, and and how much of the mark needs to be uh, on or in or however or not you want to do it. But Christians through all generations and all traditions understand that baptism is, is an essential part of being part of the body of Christ. It's obedient to God's call and to his covenant. But then also along with that, not just the mark of being admitted, is that those who belong to Christ are called to be predetermined to be obedient to everything that Jesus Christ has called us to do. And so the mark of the disciple is not just being part of the body, uh, but committed to being obedient to Christ. 
It's vitally important that we remind ourselves at times that Jesus did not say, hey, gather together and have Bible studies and go to conferences. Not that those things are bad. In fact, those are ways by which we are able to hear the word and, and grow in the word. But that was not his commission. We, we, didn't, uh, we don't see that anywhere. He doesn't say debate your theology with people online or anywhere else. He says, obey everything that I have commanded. Go and make disciples, because discipleship means doing. And so when we think of what Jesus says there and throughout all of his teaching, one of the things that we need to recognize is if there is someone who is not committed to doing what Jesus says, then he or she has a good reason to wonder whether or not they truly are a disciple or belong to Jesus Christ. You know, there's a harsh statement, and really it's a, it's a harsh reality. But even as I was thinking about it this week, one of the things that I had to think about was I wonder how many people are sitting in churches throughout our country this week, this day, right now, who have replaced the idea of being a disciple, being a, a follower of Jesus Christ, with the idea of being a fan of Jesus Christ. Pastor and author Kyle Eidelman, in his book, Not a Fan, writes this. It may seem that there are many followers of Jesus, but if we were honestly to define the relationship they have with him, I'm not sure that it would be accurate to describe them as followers. It, it seems to me that there is a more suitable word to describe them. They are not followers of Jesus, they are fans of Jesus. Here's the most basic definition of a fan in the dictionary, an enthusiastic admirer. It is the guy who goes to the football game with no shirt and a painted chest. He sits in the stands and cheers for his team. He's got signed jer signed jersey hanging on his wall at home and multiple bumper stickers on the back of his car, but he's never even been in a game. He never breaks a sweat or takes a hard hit in the open field. He knows all about the players and can rattle off their latest stats, but he doesn't know the players. He yells and cheers, but nothing is really required of him. There is no sacrifice he has to make. And the truth is, as excited as he seems, if the team he's cheering for starts to let him down and has a few off-seasons, his passion will wane pretty quickly. After several losing seasons, you can expect him to jump off the fan wagon and begin cheering for some other team. He is an enthusiastic admirer. And Eidelman goes on and he says, fans mistake knowledge of Jesus with intimacy with Jesus. And then perhaps the most indicting, he goes on and says, the biggest threat to the church today is fans who call themselves Christians but aren't actually interested in following Christ." They want to be close enough to Jesus to get all the benefits, but not so close that it requires anything of them. And so, truly, we have to wonder, especially as we consider the words that James gives to us this morning, how many people who are sitting in the churches across the country have mistaken the idea of being a fan as being a follower someone who has mistaken the idea of cheering for a team with being on the team. James 
picks up that very theme here. So it must not be a, a new challenge. It must be something that is present through all generations and through all cultures. But he picks, on, picks up that theme here uh, as he is writing to these first century Jewish Christians. And he doesn't want them to make the same mistake. He doesn't want them to mistake being a fan for being a follower. Rather, he wants them and he wants us to make the vital connection between hearing and doing. And so James is pretty clear here, and although there's an awful lot, which is true of James, as he sprinkles in his pearls of wisdom and advice and direction, along with the, the principles that give it uh, the foundation, he's pretty clear as he's writing here. And really, we're going to look at this in, in two primary principles and see how James uh, works this out. Uh, but the first and fundamental uh, one that we need to hear, because it's, it's easy to get to the second one, but the first one that he says is this, is that followers of Jesus humbly receive the Word of God. Look again at, at verse 21 where James writes this, Therefore put away all filthiness and rampant wickedness and receive with meekness the implanted Word which is able to save your souls. And, and so we see in, in that phrase, I mean, there's the, the practical things in terms of putting away all wickedness and it goes along with the previous in, instruction of being quick to listen and slow to speak and anger doesn't produce the righteousness that, uh, of God. And, and James wanting to see the righteousness of God produced in the people that he's speaking to, he, he uses those analogies and saying, this is not only personal advice, interpersonal advice, the way that you are to live your life, that really deals with your attitude as you're coming to the Word, and that we are to come humbly to the Word, and we need to receive the Word because it's the Word that is implanted within you that is able to save your souls. This goes along with what he said in verse 18. If you look back at that in verse 18, uh, he says, of God's own will, he brought forth by the Word of truth he brought, uh, brought us forth by the word of truth that we should be a kind of first fruits of his creation. And this is vitally important for us to understand foundationally because this is where I think a lot of people overlook it and then get confused thinking, well, Paul says one thing, that salvation is by God's grace, and that James says salvation is by the work that we do. Well, here we're saying that what happens, how we are saved, is by receiving humbly the word of God, which is a seed that is implanted within us, and it is by that, by God's own choosing, that he planted that seed in order that he would bring people to be sort of a first fruits of, the, of what he is doing. It is all of God, it's always of God, but the way that God works is by implanting that seed of truth, particularly the gospel within the, uh, the people uh, that he's calling, as that seed it takes root, it bears fruit. Part of that fruit is the salvation of our souls. But then as James goes on, and we'll look at here in a moment, the salvation of our souls also bears fruit. More and more looking like Christ, more and more giving of itself to the people who are around so that the seed would go from us to others, and that they too might become part of the first fruits. But fundamentally, it's vitally important that those who are the followers of Jesus Christ, that we humbly receive the word. The imagery here implanted is kind of, it is graphic, and it reminds us that God is at work. He's doing something in us that we may not be able to see any more than the seed that you plant in your garden. It's at work beneath the scenes, but eventually it is going to bear fruit. It's going to produce the righteousness of God. 
that our own design, our own intensity, our own talking, our own arguing, our own debating, anger, it's going to bear the fruit that nothing that we do is able to do. And so we come humbly recognizing that it is God, not something that we achieve, but it's a God who is at work, who plants that seed within us. And we, continuing to tend to that, begin to see that bear the fruit that we need and that God intends. And James doesn't move away from this. I mean, look what James says about the word in verse 25. In verse 25, he says, but the one who looks into the perfect law, which is the law, uh, symbol uh, or of the word, the, the law of liberty, and perseveres, uh, being no hearer, uh, uh, perseveres, uh, and it talks about being no hearer and forgets who he's doing. We're going to get to that here in a moment. But the description here, the law that brings freedom, the law that is of liberty, or the NIV says the, the law that brings freedom. That may be kind of strange to our ears, but it's, it's James's description, what God wants us to understand about the law, the fruit, and how the fruit bears in our life. It sounds odd to us because our idea of law, we don't tend to think of law, therefore, producing freedom. We tend to think of law as restrictions. They may be good restrictions because not everybody can just do whatever it is that they want and then live together uh, in a in a community, in a culture, in a church, or in a family. And so there's there's rules that get put in place to enable people to, to navigate those relationships. But by definition, we tend to think of more laws, more restrictions. We don't associate law with freedom. And yet, there is another sense in which the laws as God has created them are the very nature of freedom, the very essence of, of freedom. Biblically speaking, freedom doesn't come from less restraint, less constraints upon us. Biblically speaking, we flourish, we soar, not by being unshackled from all, but being connected to the right constraints. Think about it this way. For those of you who have a fish tank at home, go home and you look at your fish in their aquatic prison and decide that they are just stuck in there. I mean, they can't get past the glass. They're stuck in water. They can't go anywhere. And so now talking about being free and freedom that you want, and you just take the little net and you fish the things, each of the fish out, and you set them free. Put them on the floor, put them in the backyard, wherever. Just go wherever you want. If you like the water, there's a big river down there. You can go wherever you want. You just set your fish free. And this fish is not free when you set it free because the fish can't thrive. It's going to suffocate because it's not able to take in the oxygen that it needs to, to breathe, not from the air, but the fish is designed to take the oxygen from the water. And so when you remove the fish from its constraints, the constraints of the water, the constraints of, of your aquarium, it isn't going to flourish, it's going to die. I used this illustration uh, some time ago, but it seems to be an appropriate one. I remember reading about a story about a kite that actually has come to life. Uh, 
And the kite is beginning to soar and enjoying going higher and higher as the one who sets the kite uh, uh, loose um, is giving more and more string. And, and the wind and the breeze is just right on the beach where the kite is flying. And as the kite is getting up and thinking to himself, this is fun, I really, really enjoy it. Just really imagine what I could do if I didn't have this string that is tying me to the ground. And so somehow the kite is able to untangle himself from the string and therefore it is no longer bound to the ground and the kite rather than soaring, crashes to the ground because of the law of gravity and the law of aerodynamics, that it is the string and the tension of the string that allows the wind to lead the kite to soar. Apart from that constraint, the kite is not designed to be able to function and to be everything that it was designed to be. It is only by living in line with that constraint that the kite is able to soar. And the same is true for you and me and for everybody in humanity. We may chafe at a lot of the rules, and whether they're good rules or bad rules, those are debatable and certain, but the idea that we should be free from any authority other than ourselves, and therefore not bound to live according to the way that God has designed life to be lived, is not a desire for freedom, it's a desire for disaster. We can only flourish, we can only soar if we are tied, bound, constrained to the right things. And James is saying, that's the law of God. That's the word of God. When we live our lives according to the way that God has prescribed, it is only then that we can be everything that we really long to be. It's only then that we can really be healthy. It's only then that we can flourish. It's important when we look at the rules that God has laid down. Don't have sex outside of marriage. Keep the Sabbath day. Give your lives over to other people. That it's not God trying to crimp your style or restrain you in some way. It's that he has created life to be lived in this way. And only when we live in conformity to God's law are we going to find the freedom that we think we would find by becoming unshackled to it. And so James is reminding us as he begins here is, look, those who are the followers of Jesus Christ, they humbly receive, they are hearers, they are students of the word because it's the word that brings the transformation. It is the word that shapes us. It is the word that enables us to flourish because it's the word that brought life to us in the first place. And so James is very clear. Followers of Jesus Christ humbly receive the word of God. But he goes on and he says that the followers of Jesus Christ are also wholehearted doers of the word of God. And what this passage says fundamentally, and this perhaps is the, the most challenging to uh, our sensibilities, is that real faith is not demonstrated by our words, nor is real faith demonstrated by the, the doctrinal positions that we decide to adopt. Real faith is demonstrated with what we do with our lives. And James says, be doers of the word and not hearers only, deceiving yourselves. Being mere hearers or students of the word enables us somehow to kid ourselves into thinking that we are therefore the epitome of what God wants us to be. And so we pour in and we learn and we study. 
thinking that by our knowledge and by our superior knowledge and by our, uh, you know, the purity of, of our knowledge, that somehow that is, is honoring to God and is a demonstration of what faith is supposed to be, what we are supposed to be. And James says, if you're hearers only and you're not committed to obeying everything that Jesus has commanded, you're kidding yourself. This is not something that James came up with himself. Jesus himself said this to those who were following him but had not really belonged to him on at least a couple of occasions that are recorded in the Gospel of Matthew. In Matthew chapter 7, Jesus says, Not everyone who says to me, Lord, Lord, will enter the kingdom of heaven, but the one who does the will of my Father who is in heaven. On that day, many of you will say to me, Lord, Lord, did we not prophesy in your name? In other words, tell everybody what God had said, speaking to preachers and others. Uh, did, we not, did we not prophesy? Did we not preach in your name and cast out demons in your name and do many mighty works in your name? And then will I declare to them, I never knew you. Depart from me, you workers of lawlessness. In other words, what Jesus is saying is people go out and do good things. That itself doesn't tie them relationally to Jesus through whom and by whom alone we are able to have fellowship with God. And, and then perhaps even more descriptive, as, he, as Matthew records in Matthew 25, Jesus taught this, when the, the Son of Man comes in his glory and all the angels with him, then he will sit on his glorious throne. Before him will be gathered all the nations and he will separate people one from another as a shepherd separates sheep from the goats. And he will place the sheep on his right, but the goats on his left. Then the king will say to those on his right, Come, you who are blessed by my father, inherit the kingdom prepared for you from the foundation of the world. For I was hungry, and you gave me food. I was thirsty, and you gave me drink. I was a stranger, and you welcomed me. I was naked, and you clothed me. I was sick, and you visited me. I was in prison, and you came to me. Then the righteous will answer him, saying, Lord, when did we see you hungry and feed you, or thirsty and give you drink? And when did we see you as a stranger and welcome you, or naked and clothe you? And when did we see you sick or in prison and visit you? And the king will answer them, Truly I say to you, as you did it to the least of these, my brothers, you did it to me. Then he will say to those on his left, Depart from me, you cursed, into the eternal fire, uh, prepared, by the, uh, prepared for the devil and his angels. For I was hungry, and you gave me no food. I was thirsty, and you gave me no drink. I was a stranger, and you did not welcome me. Naked, and you did not clothe me. Sick in prison, and you did not visit me. Then they will also answer, saying, Lord, when did we see you hungry or thirsty or a stranger or naked or sick in prison and not minister to you? And then he will answer them, saying, Truly I say to you, as you did not do for the least of these, you did not do for me. And so James is picking up on what Jesus has very clearly taught, which is saying that there is a necessity to know what God says, what God has commanded, which only comes by hearing the word and hearing by the word, and then engaging, doing what God has called his people to do. And that there are many people who know the word and know what's supposed to be done, and they neglect to do it for whatever their reasons. And Jesus' response is, I don't know you. And clearly you don't really know me. And that the evidence is not in how much we know and how much we can recite or how well we can preach, or, or it, but it is in 
the way that we obey. It is the way that we enact. The word becomes alive within us. And then James uses a wonderful metaphor of, of the mirror uh, to help us to understand the importance of this connection of hearing and doing. And we all understand it in one sense. Now, I don't know what your morning routines are, but I look out over you and you all look pretty good. So I'm assuming that none of you, or at least most of you, didn't just roll out of bed looking like this. And so I'm guessing that at some point this morning, you probably looked into a mirror. Now, two things happen whenever we look into a mirror. One is we see what we really are. And then second is we see what we believe we ought to be. And then seeing the difference between the two, which is what we pretty much see when we get up in the morning, then we are compelled to take action so that we can bring into conformity the two things. However that gap is, what you look like when you wake up and what you want to look like when you go out, that's what you, you, you go to work and you do that. For some of us, it takes longer than others. And for some of us, is there's not enough time in front of a mirror. Now, maybe there's some people that look in the mirror and just say, wow, you know, that's the reason they look. They go back and keep looking at that because, you know, what's not to like when you, when you look at the mirror? But most of us go to the mirror because we want to see if there's something that needs to be dealt with. We want to see exactly how we can fix ourselves up and so we can become our, our better selves. And in James's analogy, he's saying, you know, the, the foolish person goes to the mirror in the morning when you wake up, and whatever it is that you think you see in the mirror, it's obvious in the reflection that there's work that needs to be done. Now, whether something distracts them or they just look at that and they ignore the work that needs to be done, and then they just kind of turn away and they forget what needs to be done in order for them to look presentable, that person is, is foolish, and he says the same is true for us spiritually. The same is true for us in our lives. The person who looks into the mirror of God's word, which shows us both what we are to be and what we are. And it calls us to then deal with the difference, addressing whether it's attitudes or behavioral patterns, uh, whatever it may be, addressing those things in our lives, dying to those things that uh, are not what we ought to be, and then tending to the things that need to be tended to, cultivating the, the fruit of God's Spirit of Christ-likeness in our lives. But the person who goes to the Word and reads the Word and can give a detailed description of what you saw in the mirror, but then turns away and does nothing with it, is as foolish as the person who wakes up in the morning, looks into the mirror, and says, it's a mess, but who cares? We wouldn't do that except for in extreme circumstances in our day-to-day -day lives. We're not to do that as we look into the mirror of God's Word. The mirror of God's Word is to reveal to us what we are to be, what we were originally created to be, what we need to address, and it instructs us on how we are able to grow in that way and then pluck out all the things that are where they shouldn't be. And the person who walks away doing nothing is the epitome of foolishness. Dallas Willard writes that, uh, uses an analogy, he says that the person who looks into the word and thinks that it somehow validates them 
is kind of like the person who takes the written portion of the driver's test and then thinks they know how to drive without ever having sat behind the wheel of a car. Or you might put it this way, it's like somebody who decides that they're going to go swim in the ocean because they got their swimming license or certification uh, online. Watch a couple YouTube videos, read an article or two, I'm ready to go to the Outer Banks and swim against the currents. We know that that's foolish, and yet that's the way that James is saying sometimes people are tempted to approach God's word. We need to recognize that what James is telling us is that we are to be those who hear and receive the word humbly, but having received it, we are to be wholehearted doers of the word. The word is given to us in order that we might do something with it. Some of that is repentance. Some of that is cultivation. But we are to do something with the word. But I'm also stunned that uh, with this is there's, there's two other things that are subtle that we need to look in here. One of the things that Jesus says that's vitally important for us to recognize, or that James says here, is that we are not to be hearers only. He doesn't say that we're not to be hearers. In other words, he continually ties us to the importance of the word, the word that is the power that is bearing fruit within us. And so it is necessary for us to be constantly studying. As important as it is for you to look into the mirror, it's as important for you to be looking at the word. It's part of our regular routine, part of our, our, our daily practice that we would be both informed and formed by God's word. But there's also an incredible promise here. Again, as we look in verse 25, but the one who looks into the perfect law, the law of liberty and perseveres, not being hearer who forgets, but a doer who acts, he will be blessed in his doing. And so there's a promise of blessing. There's a promise of blessing to those who are hearers and doers who bring that connection into their lives. Now, it's important that we note that what James doesn't say is he will be blessed because of his doing, but rather that he will be blessed in his doing. And that's a significant difference. It's not a matter of, okay, because I do these things, God will bless me. Well, he planted the seed of the word within us when we were dead in our sins and enemies of God. Everything that God is doing, God chooses to do. He's not waiting and saying, okay, well, you did enough, you're blessed. You didn't do enough, forget you. Rather, what God has done is he set up his world in such a way that there is a blessing in the doing. So therefore, anyone who lives their lives out in conformity with the way that God has designed life to be lived, they're going to be finding a blessing in that. They're going to find the freedom. They're going to find the power. They're going to find that they're not living against the grain, but they are going with the grain of the life that God has designed. And in that, they will find that they have blessing. The promise of God is that he is at work. The seed is bearing fruit in those who hear and come to understand and then put into practice, and then they find the blessing, which then motivates us to 
come back and do the same thing over and over and over. Because one of the things James is pointing out to us is that the best life, the, the fullest life, the most satisfying life is the life that is lived out by hearing and doing the word of God. And he's saying this is the rhythm that we are to engage in. And then as James wraps up, for those who are doing, he, he gives us a broad picture of what that life will look like. And we see it in verses 28 and 29. If anyone thinks he is religious and is, is not bridle his tongue, again, one of those things that we're to obey, just the, the, way that we, the way that we speak, the way that we live, the way that we think, all of those are embedded in just these, these pearls that he drops in these principles of, of the, within these uh, passages or these verses. But he says, anybody who doesn't live out wisely, this person's religion is worthless. But religion that is pure and undefiled before God and before God the Father is this, to visit the orphans and widows in their affliction and to keep oneself unstained from the world. Now what's interesting is James talks about this, there's far more to God's word and far more things to be shaped, but he's saying that this is the evidence of the life of the person who both hears and then does. And really there's two things that we see here. One is of personal holiness. That's the, the last thing he says, is that, uh, that, that the person who truly has a relationship with God, the one who is hearing God speaking through his word, and the one who has committed to putting into practice, they will be more and more conformed to what God's word says and not to whatever the whims of the press of the culture are. They will be more and more concerned about what God thinks of them than whether they are popular with the people who are around them. And their lives more and more will demonstrate the holiness of God rather than just the aroma of, of the world. That's one of the two tracks, one of the two uh, um, rails that, uh, of, of the life that God accepts, the life that is of true and pure religion. And the other one is the person who engages others, particularly those who are the most socially vulnerable. And James gives a couple of references here. He talks about the one who visits the widows and the orphans, and he's kind of touching on what sometimes is called and was called in the, uh, or the Old Testament people was the quartet of vulnerability. The widow, the orphan, the poor, and the immigrant were constant focuses of God's people, those who were faithful as worthy of the attention of those who belong to God. And so you have these two tracks of godliness, which may be striking for us because the reality is, in our present time and probably true throughout history, these are not two rails that are often seen together, are they? So we have churches and denominations and Christian tribes that are fully committed to the holiness of God, and we want to know the word, and we want to know how we're supposed to think about God and what our values are to be. But in many of those churches, there seems to be little to no concern about those who are the most vulnerable in the communities around us or around the world. We want to get more people on our bandwagon. We want to get people to join our club, join our team, wear the t-shirts, but actually to engage people in their brokenness and in their vulnerability. That may be nice, but it's not a necessity. 
On the other hand, you have many tribes and many traditions and many churches and denominations who are fully focused on those who are the marginalized and the broken and the poor of the world that are around us, but unfortunately, they seem to have very little concern for the holiness that God demands of those who are called by his name. And so therefore, they become relative. They go with whatever makes them popular. Doing good deeds but not conforming themselves to the word of God. And James says that those who are hearers and doers, these two things go together, that they are more and more shaped and demonstrate the holiness of God and more and more concerned about the people who are around them and engaging them and helping them and certainly evangelizing them, that they would have the hope that has been given to us as well. And James says these are the marks of those who are the hearers and the doers. These are the marks of those who receive the word humbly and who obey the word wholeheartedly. And so as we look at this passage again, it's one of the things that's important that we recognize is that we are to be informed, continually informed by the world. It's the only way that we're going to know God's mind is that God has given it to us in his word and has promised that the spirit who inspired the word in the first place is at work within all of those who belong to him, that we may grow in our understanding. And with that understanding, knowing what we need to address, both to put away and to put on. James is equally clear that we are not just informed by the word. It's not a matter of who can win the sword drills or the theology quizzes. It's a matter of how does it shape the way that we live. And so God is calling you and me and everyone who belongs to him to be more formed than just informed by his word. The word is our only authority for faith and for life, for our attitudes as well as our actions. And so I'm going to wrap up with just a couple of practical questions for you. And I want you to consider them, both now and in the days ahead. First is this, what place does the word have among your priorities? For some, it's a regular thing. It's an appetite. It's, it's, it's a regular meal. For others, it's an occasional thing. But as the word is likened to a seed that is bearing fruit, but it only bears fruit as we attend to it, like we attend to ourselves in the mirror, what place are we giving to this word so that we can see what we ought to be, and then by it we can see where we are? Second question is this, is are there areas of willful disobedience in your life that you know that you need to lay down and put to death? And are you prepared to do that today? I mean, it seems rather foolish for us to look into this word and say, yeah, that's a good thing, and then start thinking of all the things that the people sitting around us need to put to death. Are there areas of your life that you know that are not in line with God's holy standards? And are you willing to put that to death now? Or are there things that you're not doing that you know that you ought to be doing? 
And the third question is this, are you prepared today by God's grace to commit yourself to be doers of the word that you hear? For many of you, the answer is yes, and it has been the case. And so this is an opportunity to renew that commitment, to take stock of what you see as you look into this word and saying, are there areas that I'm neglecting and whatever, but your pattern of your life is. But for others, we kind of treat it like we do self-help. That's a good idea. I'm going to do that one. That one, it's not for me. Are you prepared by God's grace? commit to being a doer and not just a hearer and a learner of God's word. Because James reminds us very vividly, very pointedly here, that while we come to him, we are made his, by his grace, the implantation of the seed within us. It is only by recognizing and embracing the vital connection between hearing and doing that we can flourish in a way that both honors God and brings us the joy that we desire. Heavenly Father, we do pray with thanksgiving for this word, though it is a hard word. We thank you for the multiple, the plentiful illustrations that bring application to us, and yet confess that these things, that with clarity, sometimes comes discomfort. May we be reminded of your promise that you bring blessing in the doing and even the greater promise, which is that you who began all things will continue to be at work within us. So Lord, clinging to that promise, be at work within us now. Shape us to be both hearers and doers, lovers of your word and lovers of our neighbor, that you might be praised and we might experience the joy of the blessing of walking with you. To you be all praise in this church, in the church through the world. We pray. Amen.